Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, we mentioned that uh, Christy Freeland, the uh, lead negotiator for the Canadian NAFTA delegation, is heading back to Washington to uh, resume talks. And uh, on the eve of that, well, some uh, much-needed support. I've been in touch today with Ambassador Lighthizer and his team, uh, and we agreed that we would continue to talk in Washington later this week. Uh, the specifics of our calendar we haven't quite yet worked out, uh, but we will be meeting in Washington later this week. Always the optimist, or so she seems anyway, Christia Freeland. But the, uh, the, the thumbs up that she got was actually from uh, Nancy Pelosi, who is the, uh, the lead uh, Democrat, of course, in the uh, House of Representatives. And, of course, it's anticipated that they may well win the House back in the midterm elections in November. So it will be them dealing with that. So her suggestion that there needs to be a three-way deal for NAFTA, I, I would think is encouraging. Joining us to talk about this, Marvin Ryder, of course, from the uh, DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, thanks for coming in today, by the Glad way. Glad to be here, Bill. This, this is good news, isn't it? It's not bad news. Let's put it that way. It's not bad news. Anytime you can get an endorsement. Now, look, let's be candid about this. There are at least 37 governors in the United States who've said the exact same thing. Um, most of the senators have said the exact same thing. And yet, surprisingly, when asked to really stand up to Donald Trump and demand something, although they say all the right things for Canada, they just don't actually stand up and do that. Now, we have argued this because until uh, just this last weekend, it was still primary season in the United States. And so if I'm running for re-election, say I'm a Republican running for re-election, Donald Trump, in theory, could back someone who's opposing me in my own party. So even though I'm the Republican incumbent, there might be another Republican who could knock me off, and therefore I'm afraid to take on Donald Trump. That should be behind them now. Yes, they still have to face an election against a Democrat if you're a Republican or vice versa. But uh, at least, you know, if you're the candidate now, you're the one who's still standing. So I would think that would give some people some backbone here. But, Bill, I, I, all I can tell everyone who's listening is we're T-minus 12 days. This is the 18th. The magical date is the 30th of September. So T-minus 12 days to something happening. Either we've got a deal, we don't have a deal. The deal without us goes to Congress. Would then Congress approve it or would they punt it back to Mr. Trump? There's going to be lots of drama in these days and even the first few days of October. Well, if what you're suggesting is, is going to happen, that uh, they develop a bit of a backbone, uh, I, I would think that one of the telltale signs is going to be how they handle the Kavanaugh hearings over the next couple of days. Because once again, uh, you've got the president pushing this guy on it to, to suggest that there is... Uh, some second thought going on here, I think, is, is a massive understatement given some of the accusations that are out there. And yes, they are only accusations at this stage. But I'm not hearing people like Mitch McConnell or anybody else saying, well, maybe we better hold off on this. In fact, just the opposite. Yeah. They're saying we should have a hearing and, and hear everybody out on this. Um, you, you've got the intersection of two movements here, if you will, Bill. You've got, of course, Mr. Trump and the conservative movement finding a, a poster child in Mr. Kavanaugh, a trained by Anthony Kennedy, who's the retiring justice, um, and, and seemed like he was coasting to a confirmation. And then, of course, you have the hashtag Me Too movement, uh, and now you have a woman accuser. Now, it's a, an issue that happened 35 years ago. It does seem to be isolated. There's not six women accusing him or 26 women accusing him. It seems to be one. Does that make a difference? No. Even one accusation is one accusation too much. She is also apparently willing to testify, and she is a person of sterling character herself. Uh, and so, again, drama on that front, uh, just exactly what Mr. Trump didn't seem to want to need at this time.
Well, th- there are some other things about some of the testimony that Kavanaugh has given already, too, that uh, people are saying, well, wait a second, it wasn't quite that way. And the documents, you know, that the, uh, in theory, your, your public record, all of your different uh, uh, pronouncements as a judge should be reviewed, but not all of the papers are being released. And in fact, you know, I'm hearing numbers like uh, when when uh, Justice Elena Kagan was uh, was uh, put through this process, 97% of her papers were released. Sonia Sotomayor, when she went through this, 95% of her papers were released. And yet, in this case, it's something less than 10% for Mr. Kavanaugh. So there are some other things bogging it down. Nonetheless, I think that's a bit of a distraction to this. I don't think Christian Freeling cares less about the Supreme Court. No, but Court. The, the, but the the tact here is simply, well, we don't care about that. Uh, we just this is what the president wants, so that's what we're going to give him. Right, right. And, and if he's going to do that with with Kavanaugh, right. is he going to do it with NAFTA at the same time? Right. And so we got some high stakes poker and lots of drama coming up here. I, I again take great heart that the people who are at the center of this, uh, Mr. Lighthizer and Ms. Freeland, are not negotiating in public. They are not tweeting in public. Thank God they're not tweeting in public, and they're not sharing their thoughts. I would actually tell you this, going back to Washington is not a bad sign. Anytime you're talking, that's a good sign. I am absolutely certain when talks broke off last week, there were some proposals on the table and said, okay, I'll think about it over the weekend. You think about it over the weekend. Then let's get back together on Tuesday and talk about it some more. And, and I think they're getting closer and closer and closer. Now, there is other one other little wrinkle that happened last week, and that was that Mexico said um, – they really want Canada to be part of this, but look, you know, if they can't if they can't find a way, we're okay going as a two-party deal. I'm a little concerned about that. I'm I'm concerned about that in particular around this dispute resolution mechanism. That would seem to imply that Mexico's okay with a dispute resolution mechanism that's based completely in the United States. That worries me a little. Now, also in fairness, in the last 23 years, Mexico I don't think has ever filed any complaint under NAFTA. Therefore, they don't really care how you resolve a complaint since they've never filed one. Uh, we have, and we do care. So maybe there's a little, a little something going on there. And then, of course, I'm sure if a reporter stuck a microphone in somebody's face, well, I didn't really mean this, I meant something else. That's what I mean by drama. There's going to be statements, misstatements, clarifications. The key is to have the people at the table stay focused. All right. Last week when those talks broke off, uh, Christy Freeland actually left Washington to go and join the Liberal caucus out in Saskatchewan. And uh, the speculation was is that she had to report back to the prime minister yep. and, and get her marching orders. Okay, this is what they're doing. How should we respond, Mr. Prime Minister? Uh, this was the speculation on the Sunday morning talk shows, of course, uh, re- you know, re- from Ottawa this past weekend. Well, what did he say to her? Did he say, get a deal? Did he say, no, you know what? I'm doing pretty well in in the polls here by standing up for this guy. Let's rag the puck a little bit more. What do you think he's going to do here? Yeah, well, I think they want the deal. Uh, uh, As much as his poll numbers aren't too bad, Justin's got a... Uh, shall we say, storm-filled fall as we head into it. It's a beautiful day today in Hamilton, but it's a storm-filled fall in Ottawa. Remember, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is far from being resolved what's going to happen there and the dispute between uh, uh, Alberta and British Columbia. How do you get two neighbors to kiss and make up? We have a new election going on, or excuse me, not a new election, just an election going on in Quebec. We saw the leaders debate the other night in English. First time there was ever an English-language debate in Quebec. I thought that was quite interesting. French takes place later this week. Uh, That could be a change in government. Of course, we have Doug Ford now in in Ontario, and he's opposing Justin's plans on uh, uh, climate change and the environmental agreement. So th- there are a lot of other things that he's going to want to put his attention on. I think the marching order is, I want a deal. I don't want a deal at all costs, but I want a deal. 
get us as close as you can, and when you feel you can't get any closer, let me know. And, and I'm sure Christian Freeland brought in, well, how about scenario A and scenario B, scenario C? He probably prioritized those in some ways, and I think that's going to be the tone of these negotiations this week. I, I don't like to be the boy who cried wolf. I've been saying this now every week for the last month. I know we're really close. I still think it's possible we can have a deal. I, we could have a deal before this week is out. That's how close I think they are. They're, the other side of this from the political standpoint, and, and I understand that and, you know, many Canadians feel as if, hey, way to go, Prime Minister, standing up to this bully. We get that. But if you, if you do that at the expense of a deal, that can turn pretty quickly. Well, very much so. You know, again, to remind everybody, Canada's biggest trading partner, number one trading partner is the United States. We are also the United States' number one trading partner. Donald Trump doesn't always seem to remember that. I think he sometimes thinks it's China or Mexico, both very important to the American economy, but we're their number one partner, and it would have tremendous repercussions throughout. Now, if we didn't have a deal October 1, what does that mean? Well, we still are under NAFTA 1.0, so Trump, if he wanted to end that, he would have to then say, I'm giving you six months' notice, and if you don't sign NAFTA 2, then NAFTA 1 isn't going to exist anymore, and then even that, what does that mean? Do we go back to the auto pact, that would raise more questions. I think the cleanest, less turbulent route is to somehow find a way to get into NAFTA 2.0. But here's the other interesting thing, Bill. Uh, uh, we say uh, September 30th is the deadline because, in theory, written language is presented to Congress on October the 1st. Well, if you, you're still negotiating on September 29th, how would you have all the final language to put in front of Congress just two days later? Uh, so there is a point probably this week where that deadline would start to get into a bit of a challenge, not because there isn't enough time, but because there isn't enough time to do all the writing of the official language that needs to go into the deal. But what's the greater fear from the Canadian standpoint here, Marvin? Is it no deal by October 1st, or is it the fact that if there's no deal, he comes down with auto tariffs? Yeah, that was the, it's not the no deal. He, talk, he talked about it again yesterday. Right. It's not the no deal. If we just go back to NAFTA 1.0, which is what we're operating in right now, that doesn't scare us at all. It is, what, what's Trump's, um, uh, what word do I want here? Penalty. What's Trump's penalty for not failing to get the deal in time? You might remember earlier this year, in April and May, he put tariffs on steel and aluminum on everybody else in the world, but not Canada and Mexico, as long as there was progress on NAFTA. When there was no progress on NAFTA by June 1st, that's when he changed his tune and said, okay, you guys, you're just talking us to death. I'm putting tariffs on you. This is his threat now that if we don't get the deal, he'll put 25% tariffs on automobiles, whether it's finished goods or automotive parts or everything in between. And that would have detrimental effects. It would have detrimental effects in the United States, but it would also affect us. We would be back in recession by the summer of 2019. And if I'm Justin with an election in the fall of 2019, I, that's the last word I want to be talking about in an election campaign. So this is this is a, a tough decision for the, for the liberals Absolutely. in a situation like this. You've got to know when to pull the plug on, on, on this and simply say, okay, just get a deal then. Because if you go too far, it, it all blows up. The term we use is a hill to die on. You know, wh where is your line that you say, I've got to get to that line? If I get farther, that's fine, but I've got to get to that line. If I can't, then yes, I'm going to die. I'm going to give up on this. And, and I'm just not sure. We, we've talked about this before, Bill, when it comes to supply management, and in particular the dairy and the poultry industry. I think all we're negotiating now is the numbers. In other words, we're prepared to let more American produce or produce poultry into the country. We're allowed to, we're willing to let more milk into the country. The question is what volume. The Americans want it to be unlimited. We don't want that. The farmers don't want that. So what's the number? And I, I, I think we should be able to find that. I think the hill to die on really is a dispute resolution. Yeah. I, I don't want 
I personally do not want a deal that if there's a dispute between Canada and the United States, it's settled in the American courts. I need a bipartisan, at least tripartisan, hopefully, court to hear this. And that would be my hill to die on. And, and is there going to be any flexibility there? Well, that's, and that's a good question, too. You know, uh, you, you maybe you have to find out why the Americans want to change. So if I was negotiating this, if I was Christian Freeland, I'd be saying, Mr. Lighthizer, what's wrong with the current dispute resolution? What, what What's bothering you? Why can't we just leave this clause unchanged? Well, they've lost a lot of them. That's, well, that's what's wrong with it. Yeah. Yes. But then that, that begs the question, are you actually filing the right, doing the right things? Anyway, you know, what bothers you and what can we give you that will make you feel more comfortable about this process without throwing the clause completely away? And, and so, again, I think this is a question for the Americans. What's their hill to die on as well? What's, what's their must-have? Um, if, if you took Trump at his word, there's a number of things he said that Canada must give us that we haven't, and he's backed away from. So uh, it's hard to know with his rhetoric what is his hill to die on here. Well, especially if you want to follow his tweets, which is a rather onerous <laughs> task at, at the best of times. He seems to be spending a lot more time talking about supply management than he does about this dispute resolution. I, I can't recall that he's talked about that for weeks, uh, if not months. Yeah, fair so, enough. So I'm wondering, I, I'm wondering if that's even a priority or if it was just something they threw in there. Yeah, so that's a good question, Bill. I, I think supply management can get him votes in the fall. Uh, there are a number of farmers in the Midwest, pick your, pick your favorite place, in, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, maybe Nebraska. Uh, because they do not have supply management in the states, each farmer can produce as much whatever item you want, as much corn, as much milk, as much poultry as they possibly can, and they can put it onto the market. The problem is that if they all produce to the maximum, they flood the market, drive the prices down. And we've seen poignant photos of American farmers simply dumping milk on fields because they can't find a market for it. So uh, they look at Canada and say, look, you're just over there. Why can't we ship some of our milk to you? Uh, and our answer is because we've more or less got enough milk to meet all of our demands right at the moment. Uh, I've had other people who've come up to me, Bill, since we do these talks and say to me, well, Marvin, I understand all that, but you know, I'm paying a dollar a bag more for milk than I need to. If we let that American milk in, I'm going to be better off by a dollar a bag. Yes, but then what about the farmers that might lose their farms and be thrown out? So it's a balancing act. That's why we just can't let it flood in here in any quantity they want. The, all the American farmers would do is ramp up even more. And on balance, the average American farm is bigger than the average Canadian farm. That's just an easier task for them to do than the Canadians. Again, I'm not sure I want a race to the bottom where I want every farmer competing against every other farmer to drive the price of milk or poultry or whatever down to the bargain basement. I need something that balances the needs of the farmers and the needs of the consumers. But you want to get into the politics of it. We just talked about how that might impact uh, the liberals up here when it comes to an election next year. The much closer midterm election is just a few weeks away now, of course, in the States. There's a political win if he wins on supply management because that's going to have an impact on Wisconsin, New York State, places like... I, I don't know that too many American voters are going to say, boy, that dispute resolution thing, that's not really in our... I don't think <laughs> exactly. they care. Exactly. I really don't think they care. It's not a bread and butter issue. And even the other thing that we're talking to them, so there's three at the moment. We've talked about two of them. The third is, of course, what we call cultural sector. That would include things like uh, uh, Canadian content on broadcasting. We establish a minimum Canadian content, etc. And the Americans say that's just nonsense and, and Verizon should come north of the border. And I think, again, we're prepared to let some of that happen. But those two, the dispute resolution and the cultural issues, don't get him any votes in the United States. But helping those farmers in those Midwestern uh, states or even Eastern states uh, get more markets for their products, that could win him some votes. And when those states, and those states are always seesaw battles, they're all razor-thin margins, 100 votes, 1,000 votes here or there can make all the difference in the world.
world. Well, those states that we've just referenced here are the ones that really seem to turn the tide for him in that presidential election. I don't know that too many people expected him to win any of those, let alone all of them. Uh, so he's he's he owes them. That's really what this comes right. down to. Very much so. He owes them, and and of course he needs to retain them, retain them both for the purposes in this election of the House and the Senate, and then ultimately if he has a reelection campaign to be reelected into the presidency. Does Robert Lighthizer have a, a a short list here as well? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he does. Uh, although, <laughs> if you to believe if you're to believe the book written by Bob Woodward uh, called Fear, which was supposed to be this revelation inside the White House, it might be a short list of his and uh, Wilbur Ross's creation. Maybe not necessarily a list of Trump's creation. Uh, as you know, in that book, they they've talked about how the administration actually has tried to isolate Trump, and and they're all doing good things, but they're doing them in spite of the president rather than in concert with the president. So uh, uh, I don't know, Mr. Lighthizer again keeps his keeps his powder very dry. I don't know what's on his short list, but yes, I think he and Wilbur, they've got their list and if they're happy, they will sell it to the president and make him happy. It, yeah, I, I, from what I've read of the book as well, the Woodward book, it's uh, the the tact here is going to be, "Oh no, 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 Mr. President, it is a good deal and here's why." Yes, yeah. And, and we and, got that. And, and we got that. And he'll believe it. Yeah, and he will because he won't read it. Of course he does. He doesn't doesn't read any of these things. So that's why he's so easily led around from one side to another here. Exactly. So, so I, if we got the real question now is can Christian Freeland and I by the way, I think Christian Freeland is a wonderful negotiator and reads the room really well. You know, there's another term is in poker about reading the room, reading your opponents. When are they bluffing? When are they serious? I think she's really good at that. And Lighthizer, I'm not sure he was prepared for this rather short, diminutive woman being as, as powerful as she is. So, I, you know, again, I think there's good work going on here, and there's it, every inch that's given is, is hard fought and what have you. I, I think we've got the potential for a deal. I think Trump will sign and approve whatever it is Lighthizer gives him. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Hoping you're right. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for this today. I'll light a candle. Yeah, I think we all need to. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.